Welcome to Wild West Podcast, where fact and legend merge. The Wild West Podcast presents the true accounts of individuals who settled in a town built out of hunger for money, regulated by fast guns who walked on both sides of the law, patrolling, investing in, and regulating the brothels, saloons, and gambling houses. These are the stories of the men who made the history of the Old West come alive, bringing with them the birth of legends, brought to order by a six-gun and laid to rest with their boots on. Join us now as we take you back in history to the legends of the Wild West. In the 1887 county seat election in Gray County, three towns were vying for the position. Montezuma, Ingalls, and Cimarron. Millionaire Asa T. Sewell persuaded the residents of Montezuma to withdraw their petition for county seat and vote for Ingalls. To accomplish this, Sewell promised to build Montezuma a railroad and freely disperse checks ranging from $100 to $500 to its residents. In spite of Sewell's efforts, Cimarron was the winner of the election. In validating the election returns, the Kansas Supreme Court ordered the county records to be moved to Ingalls. This is the story of an attempt to remove the remaining records from the Cimarron County Clerk's Office on the morning of January 12th. 1889. It was on a cold, brisk morning when Bill Tillman pulled up to my place. Hey, George, he yelled. I looked out into the dimly lit street through the external painted words of my office window, claiming my official business as a land surveyor. I recognized Bill Tillman on his favorite horse, and beside him a buckboard wagon pulled in long ways, snugged up against the boardwalk. The wagon was carrying five armed men with Charlie Reicheldeffer holding the reins. Each of the men wore deputy badges. Tillman pulled back his jacket and flashed his left six-shooter. I took a second glance at Tillman. He also brandished a marshal's badge over his heart. At first, I was alarmed by their presence. I began to wonder about my recent involvement in the county seat wars. Had the boys come to arrest me? I reached for my holster, strapped on my sidearm, and walked out onto the front porch. "'What the hell, Tillman?' I exclaimed. "'It's six o'clock on a Sunday morning.' I glanced over at the wagon and saw Jim Masterson and his brother Tom, Newt Watson, Fred Singer, Billy Ainsworth, and Neil Reasoner. Each of them held a Winchester rifle when they laughed at the confusion on my face. "'I want you to raise your right hand,' Tillman ordered. So I did exactly that causing another avalanche of laughter from the wagon to echo down to the streets of Ingalls. I thought I would go shopping for some records and pick up your surveying equipment, Tillman explained. I thought you might like to join us as one of my deputies. What do you mean? I asked. You're not talking about raiding the Cimarron Courthouse today, are you? Yep, that's exactly what I'm going to do, Tillman boasted. It's a great morning for taking back the county seat, don't you think? The churchgoers will be getting ready for services, and those folks who have been celebrating the holiday and carousing the night away will still be sleeping off their celebration, Tillman concluded. Anyway, that is my theory. Now take the oath, George, or I'm simply going to leave you here, said Tillman. What gives you the authority to swear me in, I asked. Tillman replied, well, our good friend Buffalo Joe Reynolds was shot a few days ago while fulfilling his deputies as sheriff of Gray County. It seems that he sustained a substantial gunshot wound while chasing down some rustlers. 
This put Joe out of commission. From where I was standing, I recognized that Tillman was serious about his commitment to raid the Cimarron Courthouse because of the hard stare he gave me as he continued his story. A few days ago, Newt Watson received a telegram from the Kansas Supreme Court ordering the transfer of records from Cimarron back to Ingalls, said Tillman. Newt offered me $1,000 to gather up some deputies. Now are you with me or not? asked Tillman. Yes, I'm with you, I said. Then put down your hand and consider yourself deputized, chatted Tillman. Besides, you seem kind of silly standing there with your hand up. Someone might glance over this way and think you were preaching a sermon, laughed Tillman. The streets remained deserted that bright, cold morning on January 12, 1889, when our wagon pulled up in front of the two-story brick building in which the office of the county clerk was located. A few gusts of wind blew in from the south, kicking up dust devils that whirled about the deserted streets of Cimarron. Tillman hopped down from his horse, went into the unlocked county clerk's office, directed me, Jim, and Tom Masterson, Billy Ainsworth, and Newt Watson upstairs. Bill went back outside telling Fred and Neil to post his lookouts around the building. The streets around Cimarron stood as quiet as a nun, breathless with adoration. On the second floor of the courthouse, I found Riley, the ex-county clerk, in the main office. In Riley's office, a chairman of the county supervisors was Jake Shoup. I stepped in quickly. Jake marked me and started to go for his gun, but I outdrew him. He held his gun halfway out of his holster, and for a long moment, we stared at each other. I guess we symbolized, in a way, this whole stupid business. Two old friends ready to kill each other for the honor of having his own community named County Seat. I remember saying, Jake, if you pull it, I'll wing that hand, so help me. I should have killed you when you visited here last, Jake said. Maybe. Turn around. He turned and I flipped out his gun. One of the boys came in and we tied up Jake and rolled him under a chair so that he wouldn't take a hit if a firefight broke out. Riley dove for the vault where the records were kept when he recognized the Mastersons coming in. Jim shouted, touch that vault, Riley, and I'll kill you. Jim swung over the rail. Neil, Newt, Billy, and I followed while Tom Masterson stood at the top of the stairs with his gun in hand, in case someone rushed us. We each took a load of books while Jim got the official seal, so they could not issue any more script, and we hurried down the stairs and threw the stuff in the wagon. Tom remained on guard upstairs. On my second trip, I found my surveyor's equipment and records, which belonged to me, and brought that down. I started out the door when I heard the first six-shooter go off. Five shots right in a row. The gunshots raked my ears like the explosion of a steam whistle sounding an alarm. Now as I stopped in the street, a sound loud as a clap of thunder broke out, and a load of buckshot raked the building not more than two feet above me, showering me with brick and flattened pieces of lead. The peacefulness of Sunday morning now became a raging gun battle as Cimarron residents opened fire moving in on us, roused to encircle the courthouse. Coming out of the building, Bill cried out, George, up in the window! A shot rang out, hissing a hot bullet over my head. The bullet scraped Tillman in the leg. Bill, from behind the wagon, fired down the street. A shot hit a Cimarron man named Ed Brooks in the belly, mortally wounding him. I ran and ducked behind the wagon. I threw the books and surveyor's equipment into the back of the buckboard and glanced up, taking notice of a man up in a window, aiming a Winchester, 
his barrel pointed in my direction. Coming up from behind the sideboards, I squeezed off a shot from my Winchester. I was sure I didn't hit him, although he tumbled out of the window and rolled along a small roof and onto the street. Then, as if they reared up out of the earth, more than a hundred men, mounted and on foot, appeared. They milled about for a few minutes, shouting. Next, the bullets began to fly. One shotgun blast shattered the bricks above my head, showering me with pellets. Weeks later, I found some in my pocket. They advanced toward us, dodging from door to door, firing as they came. I almost dropped my gun when I witnessed two women, armed with rifles, rush out of a side street. Bill and I used the wagon as a fort and started to return their fire. Get the horses, George, Bill shouted. Don't kill them, try to scare them off. I couldn't help but laugh. There were so many citizens approaching us that it would take an expert to miss all of them. One rider, who seemed to be shouting orders, made a prime target, and as much as I hated to do it, I dropped his horse. He now stood in the middle of the street, shouting and waving his fist until Bill's slug threw up dust near him. Swiftly, he dove for cover. Horses were flailing on their backs, their hooves in the air. The wounded ones were screaming in pain. Men were shouting. The air was heavy with gunpowder and alive with a sound like frantic buzzing of angry bees. The muzzle fire of multiple guns was heavy, blotting out all the other sounds. Finally, one bullet tore through Charlie Reicheldeffer's hip. Fortunately, the bullet didn't sever any bones, but came out eight inches from its point of entry. The ball nicked one of the team, however, and the horses leapt forward, throwing Charlie backward into the wagon. When I noticed the team move suddenly up the street, I started to head them off, but Bill shouted, Let him go, George, and keep on firing. Hold him off. Tillman ran up to the wagon, grabbed the reins of the lead horse, and headed the team to the center of the street for cover. Tillman ran back to the wagon and yelled at Charlie, Are you all right? Can you drive? Charlie moaned, picked himself up, and climbed into the seat of the wagon, his hand covering the hip wound, blood flowing out between his fingers. Tillman reached over the wagon sideboard and brought out his old buffalo gun. The heavy 50 caliber carbine boomed, and massive slugs ripped through the buildings where the bushwhackers were holed up. This caused them to duck for cover, giving us a chance to climb into the wagon. Billy Ainsworth, gasping under a load of heavy ledgers, came down with Newt Watson. Hurry up, Billy. We can't hold him much longer, Bill said. Tell Jim to hurry. We measured the crowd. There must have been 60 guns bordering the street. I remember the one fella, suddenly bold, started to run across the street in a dodging, twisting run. Suddenly he spun around and went down. When he got back on his feet, he held his shoulder. Don't kill him, Bill shouted. Let him go. Far down the street, we noticed some horsemen gathering. We now took off on foot, and since they outnumbered us, they could easily have wiped us out. Fred Singer and Billy Ainsworth now joined us and supported our position as we backed away from the advancing Cimarron fighters. Tell Jim to come out, Fred, Bill shouted. We've got to get out of here. Chips of brick and mortar flew all around us. Fred ran upstairs, then bolted back down the stairs like a hare. They're coming, he shouted, above the echoing of the thunderous gunshots. Get back to the canal, Bill ordered. Shoot down the horses. The Eureka Irrigating Canal was located about 300 yards from where we stood. Just beyond canal was a bridge and the road back to Ingalls. We used our cover fire as we backed down the street, moving unwaveringly, dropped to one firm knee, 
took aim and fired, then withdrew a few steps. Above the crash of rifles and six-shooters came the high scream of wounded horses, a sound that tears any man hearts out, although it needed to be done. Two horses were down. The wounded horses made the other riders further up the street to hesitate. Abruptly, I felt as if a mule kicked my right leg from under me. I stumbled and fell. I glanced down at my leg. My right boot near the shin was shredded. I got to my feet. About ten feet further along, it felt as if that same mule kicked both legs out from under me. This time I crashed down harder than before. I could no longer feel my right leg. I saw the bloody tracks on the ground. I managed to get to my feet by pulling up on the buttstock of my Winchester. I used my rifle as a crutch. The barrel of the gun dug deep into the dirt from my weight. I lumbered my way in the direction of the canal. I limped along for about 30 feet when the world exploded in a shower of stars as something felt like it nearly tore the back of my head off. The sounds of gunfire brought me back to consciousness. I rolled over and saw blood all over the ground where my head had been laying. I knew I was hit. I thought for a moment I was going to die. The whole world spun as I pulled myself to my feet. A pain like the stab of an icy dagger raced through me. Again, I used my Winchester as a crutch and made the last few yards toward the canal. I'll never know how, but I made it, and crawling over the edge, I slid down a few feet and then clawed my way back up to the rim. Peering over, I saw Bill Tillman, Fred Singer, and Billy Ainsworth backing toward me, firing steadily. Billy was helping Ed Brooks, who looked to be badly wounded. Beyond them was Charlie Dixon, down on one knee. There was a crack, and I was showered with dirt. Now I knew it had been Charlie who had shot me, and he was ready to finish me off. I was weak, but not too feeble to bring the fight to Dixon. I had a score to settle with him, and now I was ready to kill him. I drew a bead on Charlie and pulled the trigger. There was a roar, and this was the last thing I remembered. The Winchester, clogged with dirt, had exploded in my face and knocked me back into the ditch. That's where Tillman found me. By this time, Charlie, suffering badly, had managed to bring his team under control. He was alert enough to drive the team back into the canal before he again slipped into unconsciousness. He was put in the back along with Ed Brooks, now also unconscious, and seriously wounded by a bullet in his side. I recovered consciousness and Bill hoisted me up. I heard him say to Fred Singer, Is the kid dead? No, he's too damned ornery, Fred said. Weak as I was, I had to laugh. Bill and Fred heaved me in the back of the wagon and there I lay in a spreading pool of blood. We all bled as freely as a creek in a thaw. Did the others get out, Bill? I asked Tillman. They probably made Charlie Brooks' wagon at the depot, he said, but I'm heading back to find out. No, you're not, Newt Watson shouted. Here they come. Get in the wagon and drive, Charlie, Bill shouted. The wounded Charlie Reicheldeffer managed to stay in the driver's seat, hanging on to the leathers. Reicheldeffer flapped the reins and shouted to his team. The wagon took off with a lurch, and we started our wild ride across the prairie. From far off, I heard the distant shouts and the hooves of many horses pounding the dirt clods out of the street. I observed Bill making haste to stack up ledgers at the back of the wagon to make a fortress for cover. Then a hail of bullets began to hit the wagon. Some whistled overhead. 
I overheard Charlie shouting at the team as he cracked the whip over their heads. There was one thought in all our minds. Had the other boys escaped? Bill, Billy, and Newt kept up a fixed steam of gunfire at the Cimarron horsemen. A few shots knocked down some of their animals, taking the starch out of the riders. They still pressed us hard. Finally, Bill picked up the buffalo gun from the bottom of the wagon and shouted, This'll stop them. He placed the heavy weapon over the edge of the pile of books, sighted, and fired. The crash of the gun sounded like a small cannon. Fred, who looked back, whooped. That's finished him, Bill. The heavy gun crashed again. As if in reply, six shooters and Winchesters barked. Slugs shattered into the wagon, splintering through the wood planks and into the heavy ledgers. But the buffalo gun and Billy and Newt's rifles were too much for the Cimarron riders. When two more horses went down, the other riders pulled up short. They just cursed and shouted after our wagon, which rapidly disappeared in a cloud of dust. The Battle of Cimarron was half over. When we reached Ingalls, the bottom of the wagon looked as if we had just returned from selling a load of stuck hogs. Blood dripped from the cracks of the bottom of the wagon. There was blood on Bill and Fred. The blood-smeared books were shattered and had big holes in them, and the sideboards of the wagon were also pockmarked with holes. The whole town gathered as Charlie, Ed Brooks, and I were brought into Dr. Clark's office. At first, it appeared as if Ed would cash in his chips, but he held on, and Doc Clark said he was out of danger. Charlie, although the bullet had gone clear through him, was up to enjoy a cigar within an hour. The bones in my shin were shattered. I had a deep bullet hole in the back of my knee and a slug in the back of my head. When he stopped the flow of blood from the open wound, Doc gave me a sedative. The boys carried me to my office and placed me on a cot in the rear of the place. I must have been out of my mind during the afternoon because Fred Singer, who stayed with me, told me later he found me walking around with my hand held in front of me as though I held a gun and muttering incoherently. The long afternoon dragged on. There was still no word from Tom and Jim Masterson or Neil Brown. Bill Tillman paced up and down without saying much. We hoped the boys had reached the wagon and perhaps gone on to Dodge. Finally, about two o'clock, Charlie Brown came in with the news. Tom, Jim, and Neil were under siege in the city hall by the whole town of Cimarron. Sounds like a damned war is going on there, Charlie said. This was what was happening back there. When we had started to retreat, Jim, Tom, and Neil decided they would bring down the last of the record books. By the time they got downstairs, we were up to the street near the canal, and the Cimarron mob were almost upon them. The only thing they could do was go back upstairs. In a few minutes, they were cut off. More than 200 armed men had gathered. Some tried to rush upstairs, but Jim Shot took off one fellow's hat, and they just turned and rushed back down. For a time, there were no more heroes. Then, somebody put up a ladder against the building to the second-story window, hoping to trick the Mastersons into thinking that some of the Ingalls people remained in town. But that didn't work. Jim kicked the ladder back into the street. The Cimarron people had another trick. They entered the grocery store below and started to riddle the floor with bullets. Jim, Tom, and Neil climbed to the top of the iron safe to escape them. Treat on safe is the way Tom described it. After splintering the floorboards, the men below shouted up the stairs. 
If you don't come out in 15 minutes with your hands up, we're going to blow up the building. Jim and Tom Masterson wrote out a message to Jake Shoup, who had managed to untie himself and was standing in the street below. The message went something like this. We have guns and plenty of ammunition. If you try to dynamite this building, we'll kill the first man who enters. We are sworn officers of the law, and we don't want to kill any Cimarron men, but you are preventing us from doing our sworn duty. Just then, Neil, who was peering out the window, called across the room. Here they come, Jim. As Tom told me later, Jim and I leapt off the top of the safe and ran to the window. I saw a man starting across the street with a bundle of what seemed like sticks under his arm. He was carrying dynamite, and once he got across the street and could hug the sides of the building, it would have been difficult to get him. And if he got in, it meant only that we would have to rush them, and we didn't know how many would be killed or wounded. I doubt if we would have gotten out of the town alive. The men who was carrying the dynamite dove into a doorway. Jim and Tom waited for ten minutes, and there was complete silence in the town. Then Jake Shoup came out with a white rag tied on the end of a stick. Masterson, he shouted, I want to talk. Come on and talk, Jake, Jim shouted in reply. Jake came up to the front of the building and shouted up to the Mastersons that if they would promise to stop firing, they would be escorted to the depot and put on a train to Ingalls. We're not going to surrender our guns, Jim replied. No need to, Jim, Jake said. We don't want any more shooting. Billy English is dead and we have some wounded. There's been enough blood spilled already, acknowledged Jim. You should have thought of that before you fired on peace officers, Jake, Jim said. Did the others get away? I think George Bowles is in a bad way, he said, and some of the other boys were hit. It was a bad morning all around. Jim and Tom talked it over and decided it wasn't a trap, so they came down into the street with their guns drawn and ready for any bushwhacking. But there wasn't any. The men began to collect behind Jake. Jim nodded in the direction of the depot. Let's go, Jake, he said. The Cimarron men drifted along on both sides of the Mastersons, and the strange procession began to move up the street. Jake Shoup was in the front. The Cimarron men, grim and dusty, carrying their Winchesters, tagging along. The tips of their holsters sagged just under their overcoats. Their hats were pulled down low on their faces. Jim Masterson's face was cold and impassive, and Tom, slightly stouter, walked up with Neil as an escort between them. All of them had put their guns back in their holsters, but they kept their hands on them. We weren't out of town by any means, Jim told me. The tension must have been electric at the depot, because as Jim said, there was some grumbling in the ranks, but Jake was the boss. He just growled at them to shut up or they'd all be killed. His men gave Jim, Tom, and Neil some hard looks, but they didn't draw on them. If they had, the Cimarron debacle would have made the OK Corral fight look like only a prelude to a real massacre. Eventually, the train arrived. When they reached Ingalls, they found out why Jake and the Cimarron men had to let them go. When the press reports flashed across the telegraph lines from the Kansas City Star, who had the story from the Jacksonian, arrival to the Union in Ingalls, a friend told Bat Masterson, who was then operating a gambling house in Denver. Bat wired Jake. 
If you don't allow my brothers, both law officers, to leave your town peacefully, I'll hire a train and come in with enough men to blow Cimarron off the face of Kansas. That night, wrapped in bandages like a mummy, I lay on my cot while a steady stream of visitors came in and out, all promising to join up and go in and finish the job in Cimarron. It took a lot of talking by Tillman to calm the hotheads. The second day after the battle, there was a commotion outside my office, and the door was flung open. Standing there was Ben Daniels, the deputy whose life I had saved and dodged some years before. Behind him were two men. From their expressionless eyes and the way they wore their gun belts, gunfighter style, with the ends tied around their thighs, I knew their profession, hired guns. Ben seemed surprised when he saw me. Matt Masterson said you were reported to be dead. I thought I'd looked up a few people in Cimarron for you and pay them a visit. No need to, Ben, I said. The doc says I'll pull through, and I guess there's been enough killing already over those damned records. Sure glad you pulled through, George, he said. I'll chin for a while, and we'll have a meal, and I'll head back to my saloon in Denver. Those damned bartenders are probably robbing me clean right now. The two men behind him didn't say a word. Ben told me they were two killers he had working for him in his gambling place in Denver to discourage the rough element, as he called it, from holding him up. Later, my old friend Prairie Dog Dave Morrow showed up to see how I was. He and Ben stowed away some food and whiskey. Be sure to look us up, George, they both said. I shook hands and watched them ride out of town. I never saw either of them again.